we do not like failure. And I think it's only in the last couple of years that I've realized that failure is fine, but you have to learn from it. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to StoryMark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, politicians Alma and Daniel Hernandez. Alma and Daniel are siblings and current and former members of the Arizona House of Representatives, with Daniel serving from 2017 to 2023, and Alma presently in office along with her sister Consuelo. As the youngest and second youngest elected representatives in the history of the Arizona House, respectfully, Alma and Daniel are known for their progressive immigration, LGBTQ, and pro-Israel stances. They have also dealt with unique traumas in their youth, which in turn catalyzed their political careers. And this is what inspires me about both Alma and Daniel, their ability to turn hardship into motivation and forge ahead with emphatic success. Alma and Daniel were born in Tucson, Arizona, where they were raised in a bilingual household and very early on learned the value of hard work and sense of community. It was always really confusing growing up because you spoke Spanish to mom, English to dad. My father actually didn't know any Spanish and he learned Spanish so that he could date our mother. He's from California, moved here with his construction business, so very hardworking family. Our mother had her own laboratory in Mexico, but moved to the U.S. to be with my father and raise us, so gave up her career for us. So we were always reminded of that growing up. Our parents have always been very involved in our entire life. So it was always really nice. You know, we all were very close as a family. There were times where things were tough, but I'm very grateful for the life that I was given as a kid, and I think it kind of helped shape who we are now. I think we were taught at a really young age the importance of hard work and the importance of helping those who have less than you do. Our grandmother, one of the things that she would teach us was this idea of ponto granito de arena, which for those non-Spanish speakers means putting in your grain of sand, the idea that No matter how big or how small, how rich or how poor, that we all have something to contribute and that we all have to put in our own little grain of sand to try and make the world a better place. So I think from a very early age, we were introduced to, one, the importance of education and how it could be something that could be really key to being able to move up in the world. The idea that hard work is really important, that you don't have to be the smartest person, but you have to be the hardest working person in the room. And then third, that we all have a responsibility to do something to help our community and our fellow folks. And did you have any sense of what you want to do when you grew up? So our mom studied what equivalent here would be biochemistry. So she had her own laboratory. She went to the University in Mexico. She was mm. she's very well educated in science and she was a scientist. And growing up, we were always told you guys will be doctors. And that was really what we knew. I was in every program as far as health related things go. I was in the biotechnology club, like everything you could imagine. And we changed everything. The route we were on, <laughs> we took a detour, I like to say, but I became a professor at Arizona State. I taught health policy at the College of Nursing. And my dad still tells me, you know, there's you still could do it. And I'm like, Dad, I did not just get two masters now getting my law degree and then go to medical. So it's not happening. I had a little bit of a different experience because when I was five years old, 
I hit the back of my head on a metal filing cabinet that was near the bed and started bleeding. So my mom comes into the room and immediately says, we have to go to the hospital. And at five years old, I'd only ever been to the hospital once to visit a dying family member. Hmm. So the idea of a hospital was these are where people go to die. Oh my God. Uh, so when she comes in and I have blood everywhere, my sisters are screaming, my mom is crying. I thought I'm dying. While we're waiting for results from the MRI or the CT, I don't remember, obviously, but one of the scans, the doctor saw that I was still really nervous. So he goes up to me and he says, do you know what we do here? And I said, well, people come to die. I'm dying. Like, black and white, this is a hospital. I said, no. What we actually do here is make people feel better. So he takes me by the hand and we go into another area in the triage room. And he goes up to another patient and says, this is my assistant, Daniel. Is it okay if he listens to your heartbeat? And he gives me his uh, stethoscope and he holds it up so that I could hear the heartbeat. And for me, that was the moment that I said, okay, this is what I want to do. Mm. This is how I'm going to contribute to the world. I'm going to be a doctor. So I trained as a nursing assistant and as a phlebotomist. So by the time I graduated from high school, I had two years of cancer research at the University of Arizona Cancer Center. I was published in a paper for helping out at a lab. I was a nursing assistant and a phlebotomist. And then in 2008, everything changed because I started volunteering on the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. And then, you know, it's all been downhill ever since. You both have suffered from incredibly unfortunate events in your youth. Alma, you suffered from unimaginable injury when you were attacked by two seniors in high school and then an intervening school officer who assaulted you. I'm sure it's very hard for you to share, but whatever yeah. you can share about this event. Of course, yeah. You know, it goes back to this incident happened when I was 14. The people at the school fabricated a story and with the officer and they lied. And I was kicked out of high school for something I didn't do. I was arrested, taken to juvie, and I had to go to an alternative school. No school wanted to take me. So mind you, coming from being an honor student, I was in all these different programs. Like our parents were very protective. We never had issues like that. So going from growing up and being in that life situation to the next day being seen as a criminal was very difficult. I'm kind of smiling a little bit right now because I actually have a lot of pain on this side of my of my spine right now. I was seeing a neurosurgeon and an orthopedic surgeon for my spinal damage that the officer caused. And yeah, it really changed a lot of my life. And every time I shared my story when I ran for office, people would say, well, what did you do? And I'm like, I didn't do anything. And that's the problem. So that's how the whole political work started to change the policies at the school level so that other students wouldn't have to go through what I went through. So fast forward, you know, I, I ran on a platform of criminal justice reform. That's really important to me. I think this system is designed to really affect people that look like me and come from my community. I don't think the justice system is very just, which is why I'm in law school now. Daniel, when you were 17, you suffered from Graves' disease, an autoimmune disorder, and you nearly died when I, yeah. because you didn't have access to... To healthcare. And I think this is one of the reasons why we all thought we would go into healthcare. So at 17, I went from being an honor student in the top 10% of my class to very suddenly sleeping 17, 18 hours a day. And then when I was asleep, my palpitations for my heart, I was literally sweating my heart was working over time. We didn't have health insurance. So what happened was there was some paperwork error and there's something called access, which is the state Medicaid system, which is healthcare for low income folks. They lost my application. They had my sisters, they had my dads, they had my moms. I somehow got lost in the shuffle and we were fighting the system, trying to get the insurance again, but I didn't know what was wrong. So I started deteriorating and very quickly lost about 
two-thirds of my weight in a summer, which is not normal, obviously. And when we finally got access to healthcare again, they started running tests and they said, your heart is in really bad shape. Your kidney, your like everything is in bad shape because everything is being overworked. We need to do some more tests. And they found out that I had Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune disorder. They then said, okay, we have to irradiate your thyroid because we're afraid that if we don't in the next couple months, you may not be able to survive, you know, having such a hyperactive thyroid and everything is out of whack. So they rated my thyroid at 17, and that was something that was really devastating for me because, again, I went from being a honor roll student who was in the top 10% of the class to now failing every single one of my classes in my junior year of high school and realizing that I wouldn't be able to graduate with my class, which was really, really disappointing. And I actually had a conversation with the principal. In the U.S., we have something called an IEP, an Individualized Education Plan. It's guaranteed by the federal government that If there is something wrong with a child, you can get an IP where they will tailor the education in the public school to make sure the child is successful. Go and meet with the principal, and the principal says, it's a lot less paperwork for me if you just drop out than if you do anything else. Wow. So I said, you know what? I'm going to fail out every class, but I'm going to come back next year, and then I'm going to turn this around. So what I ended up doing in my senior year was doing my junior and senior years together, basically. So I went from sleeping 17 or 18 hours a day to getting three or four hours of sleep a night. But it also, I think, helped build a lot of character because there is one thing that you will not hear about us, and that's that we're lazy because we've all had challenges, Alma and I in particular, that we've had to overcome and work really hard because we do not like failure. And I think it's only in the last couple of years that I've realized that like failure is fine, but you have to learn from it. Daniel, I want to take you back to 2011 when you were an intern for Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and you were organizing some event and she got shot in her head. Do you remember the moment that it happened and what what was your action? Yeah, I mean, I've never had the luxury of not talking about it, so I've had to talk about it a lot. I was 17 years old when I met her, so I started working on her campaigns and she would always say, we want you to come and intern in the office. And it was year after year, and I'd always find an excuse, and i say, I'll do it next year. Well, I finally, after she won a very narrow re-election in 2010, said, I'll do it now, because she may not come back to Congress. Who knows what the next election will hold? And I started on January 3rd, and five days later, I am standing, helping sign people in for a Congress on Your Corner event, which is literally outside of a grocery store, when a young gunman who was severely mentally ill came in and shot 13 people who were injured and six who were killed. I was about 40 feet away from where the Congresswoman was at the end of the line. So everybody that got killed with the exception of John M. Roll is someone that I had had a conversation with, whether it was the nine-year-old girl, Christina Taylor Green, whether it was Phyllis Schneck, Dorwin Stoddard, like every single person who was injured or killed is someone that I had had an interaction with. And I had been trained as a nursing assistant and as a phlebotomist, but because I'd had a passion for healthcare, I always feel like I took on extra things that most interns didn't know. So when the shooting started, I said, okay, first of all, this is probably a shooting. Second, Gabby's probably the target because of a very heated political environment that we were in. Anybody that's around her will also probably get injured if there's a gunman. So instead of me trying to stop the gunman, which is what I normally probably would have thought to do. I said, it is more important for me to get to the front to try and provide first aid to those who are 
the first that were injured because there will be somebody else who can knock him down and take the gun out of his hand. But how many other people can provide immediate medical aid until we get much better trained folks? That's exactly what happened. Got to the front of the line and I started doing what I could for then Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and several other victims. And for nine minutes, I was the one who was holding her head while we were waiting for the EMTs to be allowed to come and treat people. Because what most people don't realize is in a mass casualty situation like this one, there's a lot of confusion. And even though the sheriff's department was there within two and a half minutes, from what I'm told, they had to make sure there weren't any other gunmen and that there weren't any other threats to the EMTs and to the other people who were helping provide first response. So I sat there literally for nine minutes waiting for the EMTs who I could see a couple hundred yards away, waiting for them to come in and help provide better medical assistance than I could as, you know, an intern who had just trained as a phlebotomist and as a nursing assistant and had no medical equipment other than gauze, because that was the only thing that I had for the first couple minutes. What a story. And did that change anything in your life or how did that impact you? One of the tools that we were able to use was a bandage that was developed in Israel by Barnaton, who was a medic in the IDF. And I actually met him in 2012. And it's something that I've talked a lot about because this is a medical innovation from Israel, but it's manufactured in Michigan. And it's now standard issue in almost every emergency medical kit. So it was something that changed my life because when people ask me, why are you so passionate about the U.S.-Israel relationship? I can bring them back to, well, I can tell you a very specific example where having that partnership and that relationship wasn't just an abstract, like people's lives in the U.S. are being saved each and every single day. And the same thing is happening all over the world because of that innovation. But it also put me in a spotlight where I, again, had to choose what are the things that I'm going to be active and what are the issues that I'm going to take on because the LGBTQ community wanted to take ownership of me, the Latino community wanted to take ownership of me. I started getting all these awards. And I'm like, it's not that impressive. Like I did one thing and people gave me a ton of attention. What I'm going to do is take that attention and do good with it. There was an opening on the school board where Alma had been assaulted and I had graduated and I had had, you know, administrators who told me to drop out because they didn't expect anything from kids like me or from Alma. Got on the board, immediately started doing what I could to try and change the policies to be better for kids like us because not everybody has the same support system that we had and the same drive that we had, but it shouldn't be, you know, the lucky kids that have a really great support system that are successful. Every child should be successful. So that's where it really changed for me because I never thought I'd run for office. At some point, you found out that your maternal grandfather was a Mexican Jew. Tell me a little bit about that. I was my junior year in high school when the incident happened, unfortunately, with Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. We had a lot of family reach out after they realized that it was Daniel who had been on TV and was involved. And we started talking to my mom's distant family, and then they let us know, like, oh, we know that Congresswoman Gabby Giffords is Jewish. Do you guys know that your side of the family, they were also Jewish? We're like, oh, no, we didn't know about this. And then we started talking to mom and kind of, you know, over the years, we started piecing everything together as far as the family goes. And yeah, my mom's grandmother, they were all Cohen's and they switched their last name to Quinones, which is why my mom's now Quinones. Hmm. And they almost all married into Catholicism. So all of this happened. But in politics, most of the people that we worked with were Jewish. Like most of the community that we were involved in politics, we're almost all Jewish. All my friends, like right after high school, were Jewish. So I remember telling my mom, like, you know what? I feel like 
that's more of my community than anything else. So we found a small synagogue in town with Rabbi Stephanie Aaron, who is actually Gabby Gifford's rabbi. We became really good friends and started going there, started taking classes. And I feel like I came back to my roots in a way, if that makes sense. We did that, did the conversion, did the Hebrew naming. Two years later, studied those two years to do my bat mitzvah, which was supposed to be a very small party, but it turned into a big community event. So, yeah, and our parents are very supportive. We all go as a family. We do everything together. So Alma converted. I have not. And I joke that I'm the house goy who does everything that my sisters can't do, including the cooking. <laughs> <Aren't you> um, <laughs> and, you know, I think for me, it was kind of an interesting thing because when I was in third grade, I had a teacher who we both had who was a Holocaust survivor. And she was trying to explain what the Holocaust was. She didn't go into detail about concentration camps. She just said there was this terrible thing that happened. I'm the only one in my family. And then I looked at our family. My mom is one of 13 kids. My dad is one of five. (laughs) So it really resonated with me, this idea that people could do awful things to each other. So one of the things that I did was I went to the Pima Public Library, which was a huge resource for me growing up because I loved books. They wanted to go outside and play. I wanted to sit and read. But I went to learn more about World War II So I became a big World War II buff, and then in the process of that, started reading more about the Holocaust, and then that led me to reading about Israel, because at 10, the idea that there's a new country was a very weird idea. I thought countries were all old. So then, cut to a few years later, I start working on the Hillary campaign, and the people that were running in Arizona and in Tucson specifically were a bunch of older Jewish women who were either the children of Holocaust survivors or Holocaust survivors themselves who called themselves the Yentas for Hillary, So they taught me a lot of things about the Jewish community and about Israel. And it turned into this thing where after a very tragic event, we had a lot of people reach out. Alma started her journey, you know, with Judaism. I I decided I am not that dedicated to learning Hebrew. I, I will go to the synagogue. I will cook the Seder dinner. And the rabbi keeps asking, like, when are you going to finally convert? But we ended up just getting way more involved in pro-Israel advocacy. One of the things that always sticks out in my mind is Shimon Peta saying, find a cause greater than yourself and then dedicate yourself to it. So I said, okay, I'm being pulled in 25 different directions after the shooting. I'm going to pick two or three things, and those will be the things that I kind of focus on. So it was the LGBTQ community, gun violence prevention, and also Israel and pro-Israel advocacy. I decided that I wanted to focus on and then started dragging my scissors to more and more events. And in 2016, you were elected to the House of Representatives. Yeah. I was the youngest member when I got elected, and then Alma took that crown from me a few years later. (laughs) I am still to this day the youngest woman ever elected. You were elected in 2018. Do you remember the moment that uh, you got the the counts and uh, you you realized you won? (laughs) Yeah, it was... uh... I knew going in it was going to be difficult, uh, mainly because, again, we've we've never been a part of the establishment. I didn't have the support of everyone in the party. I didn't have all the unions, all the groups. No one really thought I could pull it off. I went through two pairs of shoes that cycle because I walked that much. Like, I literally knocked on thousands of doors. I didn't have the money that the other campaigns had. I didn't have the outside support. It was just me on my own. Can you imagine I was calling literally ex-boyfriends, asking them for a donation? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Literally ex-boyfriends asking them for a donation. And they always knew I would run for office, so it was no surprise to them. My brother always said, you need to call every single person. No person goes uncalled. And that's literally what we did. And I raised, I think I raised like $80,000, yeah. which I was so proud of myself. Again, I was just right out of grad school, 
had just moved back from Baltimore. It was a weird transition, but I raised 80,000. We knocked on thousands and thousands of doors. I ended up winning only like less than a thousand votes. It was like 600 votes that I won by. And I realized I'm like, wait, that was because we've knocked on these doors. What were some of the things that were important for you to promote? I do a lot of stuff around healthcare and elderly. So every year I run appropriations to be able to provide services for low-income seniors. That's a really important thing to me. I've done a lot of things. Again, the training for police officers, that was huge. I mean, that was a huge win, not only for me, but for the entire state of Arizona. But most importantly for me, you know, being able to be one of the few Democrats that actually has had bills signed into law. And vetoed. And vetoed. I've had bills both signed and vetoed by the governor. Under a Republican majority, I got mandatory Holocaust education done. As Democrats, it's really hard to get anything done. So I'm really proud of that. In my five years of working and serving, I have actually been someone not just voting against everything, but I'm actually getting bills done. What's next? Where, where, uh, where do you want to be in five, ten years? What I like to tell people is, yes, I'd love to continue in politics and eventually run for something else. I don't know what that is yet, but I, I'm very much in the moment type person. So although, yes, I have aspirations for later in life of doing great things, I need to focus on the job that I have now. And it does me no good to be like campaigning for something that's not even in the future for me yet. Right. So I'm like, I'm here. I'm doing what I can here. I'm going to focus and put all my energy in one thing, one thing at a time, although I do a lot of things at a time. But finishing law schools in my five year plan, I'm on track. I have two more years after the semester. I hope to continue being faculty at the university. So that's kind of my plan. I love academia and I want to stay involved with that but also still hopefully we'll be in the legislature. You know, we'll see. I don't know what the future holds. I have no idea what this next election cycle will look like. I don't think any of us do. We need dad to stick around for a little longer. His health has been terrible in the last year and a half. So just everything that I do, that's why I don't like planning too far ahead because everything that I do, I'm like, okay, I'm just hoping that every milestone and everything we do as a family and as individuals that our parents are able to see as much of that as possible. So I have no five-year plan, no (laughs) 10-year plan, no 20-year plan. It's the first time in my adult life that I've been outside of elected office. So I've never really had an opportunity to just do things that normal people do. When I was 21, my first legal drink was at the White House with Michelle Obama. It was at the State of the Union. So like I've had a lot of incredible opportunities and experiences, but I'm looking forward to finding new passions and hobbies. I'm hoping to spend a little bit of time to find out what are the things that I can do being outside of office for the first time in over a decade. So now I'd like to ask you a few questions that we ask each of our guests. What piece of advice do you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? I would say possibly don't take too much on. <laughs> I think that would have been nice to know. I mean, I should know by now and I'm, I haven't learned Still my lesson. Still don't know it. Uh, but I do think that if I would have heard that from others early on, it would have my life wouldn't be as stressful as it is now. I can never pick just one thing. <laughs> um, and they're both from RuPaul, which is pretty funny. So the first one, what other people think of me is none of my business. And if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? If I worry about what other people think of me, then I'm never going to get anything done. And I'm never going to be happy because I'm always trying to make other people happy. What is the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? I am very diplomatic. And even though I'm very willing to put my feelings aside, I remember everything. It is not advantageous to hold grudges. It is not 
good or healthy to do that. But I'll still remember. I will have gotten over it most of the time, but I'm not going to just forget the transgressions and the way that people have treated me, but I will work through it. I do believe that there are people who probably are out there thinking I don't have emotions and I don't really have feelings and that I'm not good at expressing those feelings. I think they're wrong. I only do that when I'm comfortable around people that I know. I'm actually genuinely a very nice, good person. So yeah, I think that's one of the big things. What are you currently obsessed with? My dogs. They're just so happy. They can't talk back to you. They like love <laughs> you. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm always obsessed with my dogs. Reading for fun again, because for 11 years as an elected official, the most I would read was the homework that I was given in my master's program or like emails and briefings and memos or bills, obviously. Now that I have the time to read and I'm really enjoying doing that for fun for the first time in a long time. And last but not least, what are you most optimistic about? I'm very optimistic about the future of the Democratic Party, mainly around issues that I care about when it comes to Israel. I'm optimistic that hopefully one day we'll be able to get to a point where we can have these discussions without it being so contentious. I hope that we will see that change and shift in the next few years. I think one of the things that surprises people is that I still believe that our political system is one where, because we are a democracy, this tension that exists, this vitriol and this hatred, is like a fever and it'll eventually break. Having served in elected office for 11 years and having seen that even the people who are the furthest right and the furthest left can come together on even some of the issues that you'd never expect, that we will find ways to do more of that moving forward. Daniel and Alma Hernandez, thank you so much for being with us today. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find a transcript of today's episode, along with past interviews, on our website, storymarkpodcast.org. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Patrick Emil, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and later out. See you next time.